Welcome to this special edition of the Tinnitus Talk podcast, dedicated to Tinnitus Week. Tinnitus Week is held every year in the first week of February, and most of the tinnitus organizations around the world take part in it. The aim is simple, to raise more awareness for tinnitus. Now, we've tried to use Tinnitus Week in the past for broad general awareness raising, where we tried to make the general public understand the plight of people suffering from tinnitus and the need for a cure. We've created, for instance, videos that describe what it's like to suffer from tinnitus. And while we're proud of that work, we found it difficult, to be honest. Because to really pull off such a campaign and reach lots and lots of people around the world and really make an impact, you need a large budget to buy ads and such, and you need a team of professional campaigners. Especially because there are so many causes out there that seem to generate public sympathy much more easily than tinnitus, whether it's cancer or animal welfare. We're just a tiny nonprofit without any full-time staff. So while we still stand behind this broad awareness-raising goal, because clearly the suffering caused by tinnitus remains very underrecognized, and if there are any bigger organizations or philanthropists out there who can afford to set up the kind of large-scale campaign that is needed, we will gladly jump on board. But, as this is not the case yet, we decided for Tinnitus Week this year to promote something a bit more manageable and in scope for us, and more directly related to our daily work. We do a lot of work with tinnitus researchers, so our theme for this week is related to a research project that we're working on within a consortium on the topic of biobanks. Now, this might be a topic that you've never really considered in relation to tinnitus, but I can assure you biobanks are crucial to cracking the case of tinnitus. A biobank stores biological samples and other data from typically large populations, like thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of people. And it's this kind of thorough and large-scale data collection that's currently lacking for tinnitus. I talk about this with our two guests, Christopher Sederoth, a researcher who focuses on the genetic underpinnings of tinnitus, amongst other things, and David Stockdale, the chief executive of the British Tinnitus Association. We talk a lot about the need for better definitions of tinnitus and obviously the need for more data. Those two are actually closely related. A lack of clear definitions and clear target patient groups often leads to collecting the wrong kinds of data. And lack of big data is one of the reasons in the first place that we don't have good definitions for tinnitus and lack clarity on subtypes of tinnitus. We also talk a bit at the beginning about COVID-19 and its relation to tinnitus and hearing loss. And Chris talks quite candidly about his personal experience with tinnitus. As you might know, we're a small team of volunteers working on the Tinnitus Talk podcast. We spend about 70 hours creating one episode. One of the extra things we always do for our audience is to create a transcript. This is especially important because we're dealing with a hearing impaired and hearing sensitive audience. You can find transcripts for all of our episodes on tinnitustalk.com podcast where next to each episode there's a button marked CC to download the transcript. You can support our work, if you want, through Patreon for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month, less even. Just go to moretinnitustalk.com, that's moretinnitustalk.com, for all the options. By doing this, you'll also get access to video versions of our recent episodes and bonus content. You can also support our work in other ways by, for instance, giving us a positive rating on whatever podcast platform you use, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or Google, or you can share our episodes on social media. We really appreciate your support. Now, without further ado, let's listen to Christopher Sederoth and David Stockdale. 
Today we're talking about biobanks. Uh, it might sound like not the most exciting topic to some of you, but I promise you it is an interesting topic and very important because if we truly want to understand tinnitus and perhaps cure it, we will need big data from biobanks. And, and that's what we're talking about today with two guests who are joining me. I will ask each of them to introduce themselves shortly, uh, but just briefly, we have Christopher Sederoth with us, a researcher who has been focusing on tinnitus for many years and has specifically been looking at the genetic underpinnings of tinnitus. And we have David Stockdale, a returning guest of the podcast, the CEO of the British Tinnitus Association and a big advocate for biobanks for tinnitus research. Uh, David, can I ask you to start by briefly introducing yourself? Yep, so thank you for the welcome and introduction, Hazel. As you said, I'm David Stockdale, Chief Executive of the British Tinnitus Association, and I've been Chief Executive since 2010. A big passion of mine has been in following the tinnitus research, looking at how to engage with it effectively, how to support the research community, and ultimately how to encourage and steer the community towards looking at cure-focused tinnitus research. Thank you, David. Uh, Chris, do you want to do the same? Yes, sure. Thanks a lot for the intro as well. I'm delighted to be here. Um, indeed, a very important topic. Um, so my name is Chris, and uh, I'm a biologist by training. I've uh, made my PhD degree in mouse biology uh, in uh, reproduction and metabolism. And it's only during my postdoc that I shifted uh, towards tinnitus, um, also because I experienced it and uh, found the same problems as many of your uh, listeners. Um, so I went to the Rockefeller University for my first postdoc and started developing a mouse model for, for tinnitus. And then I moved to Sweden at the Karolinska Institute, where I joined the lab of Barbara Canlon um, and worked on her topics with circadian regulation of noise-induced hearing loss. But then also I started launching my own research arms um, on tinnitus and uh, in humans. Um, so, um, uh, after that experience, um, I moved to England very shortly, a uh, period of COVID made it a bit difficult and I'm now back in Geneva with the family and uh, still doing some research on tinnitus and, and hearing loss, but uh, at a smaller scale level. Right. So Chris, was it literally your own experience with tinnitus that caused you to pick that up as a research topic or were there other factors involved? Yes, I've been curious about it. Um, uh, most of it was was more uh, on, on aspects of hearing, um, and that happened before my master's, uh, because I've been playing music for, for a long time and during my teenage, um, and probably I've been exposing my ears to a lot of damaging sounds. Uh, at that time, we were not equally aware about um, auditory protection. Um, and uh, I made my uh, master's um, research in Montpellier, uh, with a team from Jean-Luc Puel, who's, who's a brilliant uh, researcher. And that's where I got introduced to people that were doing tinnitus research in animal models. Uh, that was in rats, though. Uh, but that was my first uh, interaction. I thought, wow, that, that's fantastic um, that, that you can ask a, an animal uh, whether it has or, or not tinnitus. And I thought this was really interesting. Um, but then at that time, I had uh, found a PhD position in Switzerland, so I went back there and learn things from other fields too. Uh, and I think that this was beneficial then to bring back, you know, another approach to, to the area uh, so that there was limited knowledge in molecular mechanisms and hearing as well. Isolating RNA was difficult. So um, I got exposed to that before 
And I think this, this gave me a little chance to, to come back afterwards. Um, yeah. If you're comfortable talking about it, can you tell us a little bit about the, the personal experience that you, that you mentioned? Like, how was it in the beginning and how is it now? Sure. Um, the, um, the initial experience, I was going to tell you in 2002, I went to Spain and I went to visit some friends there uh, during a period of uh, New Year uh, time. And uh, Spanish people have this tradition of using firecrackers all the time. Oh, yeah. And uh, when, you know, this I would think is kind of okay-ish. Um, in the streets, there was a young guy that launched a dynamite stick that was, you know, equally long as my, my arm. And wow. it exploded next to my ear. And that's where I got instantaneously uh, tinnitus. Um, and it, it lasted over, uh, you know, very loud over uh, a lot of time, much more than the other occasions where, you know, I went to discotheques and parties where it was occasional and then it would fade away after, after a day or two. But this one kept on ringing always. And I'm saying now that it kept on ringing for 20, 20 years. Um, and, uh, so I went there to visit some, some doctors and they, you know, claimed as the usual, well, you know, uh, we see nothing wrong in your hearing. Um, it must be stress. You know, mm. how can you say that? I just, you know, experienced, you had acoustic trauma. Literally. Yeah, I experienced that, the, yeah. the trauma. What, what are yeah. you talking about? And, um, my trauma was not visible on any of the tests that were performed at that time. So I was 20 years old, you know, hearing is rather good at that age. Mm. And maybe the damages were not uh, equally obvious. And then with time, I mean, it took two years before it went kind of down in intensity. The first two years, it was very loud. And my only way of going to bed and sleep was just to work like a madman during my thesis work. And, and uh, I would just crash into bed, not even listening to the, the loud noises that I had. But then I think that working uh, intensively helped me focusing on something else. And this has helped me a lot coping with it. And uh, it reduced my, my anxiety levels, it reduced my stress. And I had a lot of fun doing the research. Uh, so that was a very pleasant time of my life and, and you know, coinciding with, with a lower degree of, of distress, and, but also perceived loudness. Um, and I'd say that uh, this has been rather stable until very recently. Um, and now uh, things have gone a little bit back up, but uh, you know, I've experienced Tremendous amount of changes in the last year now, uh, moving with the kids and the family to Nottingham, them not being super satisfied about the changes and the situation of COVID in England. I declined on this substantial position and brought back the family here. Uh, I lost my mom four months ago and, um, and now, uh, my wife left me and I'm divorcing. So, um, oh, all that wow. together, you know, you can feel that it's putting a little bit uh, of pressure on top of it and. It seems that it's coinciding with what everybody experiences, you know, with, with epochs of, of stress, epochs of anxiety, um, the level rises. And uh, um, I'm quite comfortable that with time, when it's gone, when my situation, personal situation will improve, that things will kind of fade away. I still have no problem sleeping and so on. I continue working equally. Wow, that's a lot of, lot of huge personal changes, Chris. Yeah, I mm -hmm. can imagine that that triggers your, your tinnitus more. And that's, of course, a, a recognizable story for, mm -hmm. for many of us who suffer from tinnitus. I certainly noticed when I'm very stressed that I, because I'm quite habituated, so I don't, I'm not on a day-to-day -day basis, usually not that bothered uh, about my tinnitus. But it is really in those moments of stress, then suddenly 
I like, I hear it very loudly. I'm like, wow, geez, where did that suddenly come from? And I know it's because I'm like really stressed that day. David, I think you've said before that you're getting a lot more calls to the BTA helpline these days because of the COVID pandemic. Is that is there a, a stress factor there involved as well? Or what do you think is happening? Yeah, we believe so. Um, you know, sorry to hear your news as well, Chris. Um, obviously, we spoke about it before. But yeah, yeah, sorry to, to hear all that. Um, yeah, we, we believe there is a, a link between stress and anxiety and tinnitus, of course. Um, it's well proven in the in the literature, I think, and and we're certainly seeing that um, you know play out through our our helpline and our web chat calls, as well as we see numbers drastically increase, and especially when um, new lockdowns or or new news appears or occurs with the COVID um, situation, then yeah, we certainly notice that impact on our helpline. And something else we're seeing at the moment as well is people really struggling to get help from the health services as well, so from primary care, from GPs. And physicians mm -hmm. and then being able to get that onward referral so we're certainly taking a lot of calls from people really frustrated because it's just got harder to get through the healthcare system as well with you know other issues like tinnitus because covid is just dominating and you know a lot of healthcare workers are, are off sick with covid as well putting further stresses and strains on on the existing systems so so yeah lots of issues um, mixed together really which is making it a really unpleasant experience and, and quite traumatic for a number of people living with tinnitus. I can imagine yeah. Are you getting a lot of questions about the vaccine because we see a lot of discussion on the tinnitus talk forum about potential risks of the vaccine. I mean my personal non-expert opinion is that probably getting COVID would be much more dangerous to your hearing than the probably very, very low risks of uh, side effects from the vaccine. But again, that's like, you know, I haven't read up on all this, you know, if there is any scientific study on that. Uh, are you getting a lot of questions on this? Yes, lots. Um, and we have a page on our website as well at tinnitus.org.uk that's keeping up to date with the UK data on how many people are reporting tinnitus as a side effect of the vaccines. So we've got a page there and we're following the, the advice from the MHRA. And at the moment, it does look like tinnitus is a side effect of the vaccines, um, although it's a rare side effect. And much like you said there, Hazel, our advice and guidance and that of um, all the UK authorities is still that um, the vaccine and, and the protection it gives far outweighs any of the, of the risks of the side effects that we know about at the moment. And also, as you say, we don't know what impact that is, if it's tinnitus that becomes permanent, if it's transient. All we know is the number of people that are reporting it through what's called the yellow card scheme within the, the MHRA in the UK. Chris, is this something you've looked into at all, potential links between COVID-19 and, and tinnitus? Not, not personally. It was one of the purposes um, when I came to Nottingham. They wanted to start launching a project like that. Well, it's been a, a big, um, uh, uh, how to say, uh, engagement from the NIHR to to motivate different different labs to to start um, um, focusing on COVID problems. But um, for the short time that I was there, it was extremely difficult to design a study uh, with appropriate control people um, to to make. Uh, uh, very well designed and really answer the questions without doubts about the impact of that COVID onto, onto tinnitus and some difficulties. Yeah, you want to say something, David? 
No, I was just going to agree with what you're saying there. Sorry, I was going to wait till you finished uh, before coming in. But I think you're right. And we've been working with the University of Manchester as well, just trying to understand and unpick the picture of what's happening. Um, So in the UK, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence has recognised tinnitus as a symptom of both COVID and long COVID. And what we're, we believe will happen is that when people have had COVID, that you'll see this first wave of issues like respiratory issues and other things that, that people seek help for. And then once they're, they're through that, then actually maybe they're left with residual issues like tinnitus that then sees this sort of second wave of help seeking as well. And, and we're, we think that's what's happening at the moment. And that's certainly, you know, something that's coming out in the data is that tinnitus does seem to have some sort of link, but no one really understands what that is. And and some research that's um, imminent from the University of Manchester as well suggests that possibly it's something that's that's happening alongside um, COVID and may not be as linked as first believed. But yeah, we're really not sure, I think, on on what's happening. And and it'll take bigger and more data than is available at the moment, I think, to really unpick that picture. Yeah, because you want to also, you know, distinguish whether the effects are due to the stress related to the confinement stress related to the situation and employment um, from the virus infection itself. For those that have been infected, some have been diagnosed with a test, but others have not. Some have been diagnosed, but been asymptomatic. Some that are asymptomatic didn't know they had been infected. And and so there is a lot of cloud of noisy data in there that, that had made it, you know, it, it delayed the start of the project. Um, now I've, I'm not aware about the status of this within Nottingham, uh, but um, but I, I, I acknowledge the complexity in designing studies in this context. Mm-hmm. Although I see a lot of work being published in other conditions, but they they can be highly unreliable. And um, I guess the philosophy from Nottingham is that you know you don't press on the button until you're really sure what you have in hand and publish quality work. And the early research as well was based on um, people who had been admitted to hospital with COVID as well and then following them at discharge. So, you know, those cases were much more serious, of course, have been hospitalized with COVID. And, and that did suggest, you know, much higher levels of tinnitus and hearing loss than, than maybe has been seen in, in more generalized data now, I think. Yes. But there you also have uh, um, complex confounding factors like in ICU care, you have a lot of hypoxia, so deprivation of oxygen, which is highly uh, damaging for the ear, uh, and this could, you know, impact on hearing loss and also on, on tinnitus. And in fact, generally, there is very little knowledge about the impact of ICU on on those two uh, disorders separately. You know, that's maybe only now that people start to think about this as a possibility. Um, maybe thanks to the COVID pandemic, that this has awakened like a, a new area of research, but still, still low activity there too. Right. So. Let's let's move on to the topic of biobanks. As, as interesting as this is, um, this uh, is probably worth a dedicated podcast episode, actually, links between COVID-19 and tinnitus, but probably once there is a bit more data and, and evidence available. So on the topic of biobanks, Chris, not all our listeners might even know what a biobank is. How would you define it? That, that's, um, that's a big question in, in some way, because um, I would say first that um, there are a lot of epidemiologists that have gathered data uh, that mean questions uh, on, on people to understand trends and so on. That, that is quite typical now for, for tinnitus. We have a lot of epidemiology in, in the uh, literature. Uh, but biobanking, maybe the difference is that you, you collect the same type of information, but on top of it, you include 
samples from 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 donors so people individuals that can be urine that can be blood or plasma uh, that with the blood you can extract dna from saliva as well uh, from blood and saliva you can extract different molecules hormones things like that that, that can help you then go a little bit beyond that just the simple uh, um, abstract data that you collect with uh, that can be questionnaires but also i mean auditory measures they stand into uh, a computer mri also stand into a computer so that's not proper biobanking um, if we also want to go a little bit further now it's something that could be very interesting for tinnitus research in the future um, there are um, so um, uh, in the icu system and and uh, if, if a university has a uh, relationship with those ICU units in a hospital, sometimes they also do biobanking on material from people that have died. Uh, so um, necropsies happen and then you collect tissues. And, and in some countries you can have history about the patient uh, information to a medical registry. Um, that happens in Sweden, for instance. So you can relate a tissue with previous history of, in that case, you know, we're interested in tinnitus and things like that. So brain tissue, cochlear tissue, the ear, that's very seldom uh, collected, unfortunately, because it's very difficult of, of, uh, for accessing it. It's really in the middle. Uh, you have to break the temporal bone most of the time. Uh, once you've achieved to do that, and it's a lot of drilling process in, um, the, the, the ear has been under quite a long time of uh, oxygen deprivation, and everything starts to degrade dramatically fast. So. Um, in that area, I'd say we've been a bit delayed versus other fields. So uh, knowledge has been lagging there, but it's definitely something that has to uh, be enforced in the future as well. So here, biobanking is really biomaterial samples that are collected on top of um, informatical data uh, that solely stands on a computer. I think that's David, a how did this uh, topic first come onto your radar? And uh, you can also add, of course, to Chris's definition if you want. Yeah, thank you. So I think that's a great overview of a biobank that, that Chris has given there. And I think it's just worth um, sort of reflecting that there's also different types of biobank as well. So you can have ones like um, the UK biobank, which may be the most famous one, where you just collect lots and lots of data and then use it for very different studies. Or you can have biobanks where you're targeting a specific disease or condition like tinnitus and, and you know, try and get um, studies or off the ground that are, are much more focused and dedicated and you try and collect higher quality data in a in a specific area that will hopefully help you then you know use that data to access other sources or you know access wider sources like uk biobank after collecting it as well in terms of why um myself and the bta have got interested in uh, biobanking it's it's really part of the the journey we've been on um through our research evolution really so I'm sure everyone was aware of the, the drugs trials that happened around 2017, 2018. And of course, you know, really frustratingly for the community, they all failed. But what happened was that actually those companies were very vocal and open about why those trials failed, but also then started saying what was wrong or what would be needed to really see investment in, in tinnitus research from industry, from pharma, from biotechs in the future. And they started talking about things like the need for a better way to objectively measure tinnitus, the need to better understand how to translate findings in animal studies to human studies and the need to potentially subtype tinnitus and look at how to better define target audiences for um, recruitment into research. 
So we heard all of these messages and started developing what we called the Cure Map as well, which was just looking at trying to assimilate all the research that was happening around um, tinnitus and trying to plot it in terms of where did it fit and where did it go. And we published that in a paper called Why is the No Cure for Tinnitus, which really tried to go through these challenges that research community faces in terms of moving on. And whilst we were discussing it and developing that with industry, with other charities, with academia, what became clear was that actually there were several questions that needed addressing, ideally at once. Um, things like, you know, what is the mechanism of tinnitus? Um, how do we develop better ways to measure it? And actually, through that thinking and discovery, what we really felt was one way that you could ad address this in a big bang, if you like, in a, in a way that would move the field forward would be to develop a biobank and look at addressing as many of those questions you could in one shot by getting as many people living with tinnitus through a, a research project, but trying to ask every question you could rather than, you know, what we have at the moment, which is lots of smaller scale studies looking at quite niche areas. You know, if you could actually get the, the scale and the breadth, then maybe we can successfully answer some of these questions um, in one go. And so... Both of you have already been involved in, in some studies using existing biobank data to glean new insights about tinnitus, right? Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of those studies and see, you know, what can we already learn from data that sort of already exists? And then, you know, later we'll talk about what, what more is needed um, uh, because we, I think it's clear we need a lot more data and there's a lot more that needs to be done. Chris, can you can you start by giving us an example of a study where you used existing biobank data and you really learned something new about tinnitus? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd say that there are three different studies that I'd like to share because they were all very different, but all were very insightful into the, the struggles we've been facing and how what we learned from that. The first one was part of a European project called ESSET, the European School of Interdisciplinary Tinnitus. And there we got uh, funding for a PhD student, Natalia Trepshevska, who's been working on GWAS, so genome-wide association studies. Um, we um, got a, a donation to start um, genotyping people from the Swedish Twin Registry, which was a database we've been using in Sweden to evidence some first parts of the higher irritability of tinnitus in, uh, in the Swedish population. And um, there we uh, gathered efforts with other researchers at Karolinska, because this is still very costly, to help genotyping the, the, the majority of the, the, the samples, uh, the blood samples available there. And um, thanks to that, Natalia started doing the work on about 20,000 people from the twin registry. But it came very obvious and rapidly obvious to us that this was not enough. So we started collaborating with a lot of other people knocking on doors, simply existing biobanks uh, that can be FinGen, so that's in Helsinki in Finland, the Estonian biobank, uh, who, you know, they have um, registry data, so it's not uh, proper um, questionnaire answers. Uh, they just have been uh, diagnosed by a doctor and coded with the 93.1 uh, ICD code from the WHO, uh, which is, one can say, quite reliable in, in some way. Um, and then, uh, of course, we expanded to, um, for instance, um, Hunt in Norway. Um, the UK Biobank was interesting. And uh, we, uh, we found other people were also working on the topic, but with completely complementary uh, samples. So 
that was Paul McDougall and Francis Williams from the UK Twins. Uh, so we joined efforts and, and now we have uh, a sum of 700,000 people that uh, this is being analyzed. Um, during that time, um, Clifford et al., you know, so from uh, uh, the University in San Diego, um, San Francisco, uh, published uh, the first U.S. on tinnitus. And uh, so, you know, we had hoped, uh, and this has been uh, published uh, for schizophrenia, typically when you increase the number of of samples, you have a linear increase in the number of uh, polymorphisms that you can identify in the population. Oh, sorry, Chris, can you can you define polymorphisms? <laughs> yes, very good. A polymorphism would be a uh, variance in the genetic code uh, that may be associated with a specific trait. So when you study genome-wide associations, uh, you know, data, you're not focusing on the whole genome. You are uh, interested in um, taking like the surface of uh, of the um, of the iceberg by looking at about 10 million uh, of those polymorphisms uh, and see whether they have a trend in associating themselves with uh, a given trait um, so that that's kind of a more sh shallower I'd say analysis than uh, the whole genome sequencing where you're looking at all uh, you know the letters and the bases from the entire, uh, sequences from uh, from a human being, um, but uh, GWAS is still very uh, powerful to guide you, you know, on on potential genes that could be involved in tinnitus. It doesn't tell you which one, but it tells you which region within uh, a, a genomic landscape uh, there could be some important things to to dig in further. So um, what we found with this is that uh, we didn't really increase our knowledge for tinnitus than what. Clifford had been publishing before, and we were quite disappointed. This work is not published yet. For we're trying meaning to... you didn't find a clear link between a specific polymorphism or, or a genotype and and tinnitus. Is that no, what so, you're saying? So some of the things that they have found in the past we replicated, but okay. we didn't have like an incremental knowledge in the findings. So we increased the sample by threefold, but we didn't increase the knowledge by threefold. And what we believe is the issue is that we have a big heterogeneity in how tinnitus is defined in those different cohorts. Because if you take the same um, data for the UK Biobank than what Clifford had published for tinnitus, the number of hits that you find for hearing loss is much higher. Um, you get three regions for tinnitus, but you get about 40 for hearing loss. And now that we expanded also this number to 700,000 people, we also increased the knowledge for hearing loss, but we didn't for tinnitus. And what we believe is the issue is that how it's defined in, in the different courts is causing a lot of noise. Um, and and uh, we that's where we need better, better definitions. Sometimes cohorts ask the question, have you ever had tinnitus in your life that lasted more than five minutes? But this doesn't tell you if you have tinnitus now, mm. if it's constant, if you suffer from it, and so on. Others just focus on severity, but not knowing if you have it con continuously, permanently. Um, let's take the example of the UK Biobank. The, the most stringent definition you have there is whether uh, you have tinnitus uh, most of the time or always, but it's within the same definition. And the prevalence for that group is 7% out of the whole UK Biobank. But we know severe tinnitus is rarer. It's about one to two percent of the population. So even the UK Biobank is missing that type of information. 
Right. So um, you've got all this detailed information about people's genes, but you don't have the details needed about their tinnitus. That's correct. And contacting back people to re-ask them that specific question is not really doable. It's a huge effort for all the different uh, participating uh, biobanks to do that just for the sake of tinnitus. And that that's where there is a big need for investing, you know, funds and efforts into developing maybe our own biobanking system. So, in fact, we in other projects um, that we had from the EU, so that's Tiger, uh, Tinnitus uh, Interactions and Between Genes and Environments, and the other one is Unity, which is currently ongoing as well, we received funding to do some of those more detailed uh, genetic analysis to so to sequence either the whole exome. So exome is the region of the genome that encodes for proteins. That's about 1% of the genome. And then we also had money to perform whole genome sequencing, so to get the entire length of an individual sequences. And here we did a different thing. We've seen in our own um, studies that uh, with greater severity, it appears that there is also a greater likelihood for tinnitus to be shared within a family. So we believe that with greater severity comes also greater genetic liability. And uh, that's why we started thinking that was work with uh, Jose Antonio Lopez Escamas from Granada to focus on extreme cases of tinnitus, so highly severe. And there we managed to obtain about 100 samples that were fully sequenced. So we went for very homogeneous populations, but very detailed analysis as well. And there we managed to find some variants in genes that are, you know, encoding synaptic plasticity um, in different regions in the brain, but we were able to replicate these in independent cohorts. So it, it shows also the value of having greater details in the data that you collect, because then you don't need 700,000 people to find something new. You need smaller numbers. Um, but now, of course, the question is maybe how much, how much effort should we spend on that? Uh, for sure, with 100 people that we have been sequencing, we don't have the holy grail in there. Other studies that have been performed, for instance, with schizophrenia, have shown that they needed a, a thousand participants, patients, I would say, uh, to replicate many of the findings that were obtained with the GWAS. Uh, so that gives us a little bit of um, sense about the, the, the size of the material what, of we need. But tinnitus is also a bit more complex. It's quite heterogeneous. Some people have pulsatile tinnitus, and that not cannot be considered, you know, the same. Others um, have it constant, but but buzzing uh, like a tone, maybe because of a trauma. Others have it hissing or is creaking, or uh, even uh, pulsatile, but against body rhythms. So, in anticipation of such heterogeneity, we have to think about collecting even more samples than that. So, I want to get back to that topic in a moment of of subtyping or whether subtypes exist or not. Um, and I will ask David in a moment to talk about some of the studies he's been involved in. But Chris, if you would have to summarize what is the status quo of our knowledge at the moment about uh, the link between genetics and tinnitus, how would you summarize that? Uh, to me, I'll, okay, let me try my own sort of lay interpretation. Uh, it sounds like you're saying we're, we're fairly certain that there is some kind of genetic predisposition 
to tinnitus. That that could be one of the factors that causes someone to develop tinnitus. But we don't really know yet which genes are involved or maybe only have a vague idea. Yeah. And not to be a bit negative here, uh, I'd say that uh, recently people have found that any trait has a genetic component. Uh, on average, it's 50%. So it's not a surprise to see that even tinnitus falls into that region, but we needed to gather that evidence anyway. Now, a difference is that we see that the greater the severity and the greater the involvement of genes in there, but now the status of knowledge, I'd say that the existing biobanks don't offer the resolution to gather the data that's there. Um, I'll, I'll give you other examples for those definition issues. We've been working with other uh, data, not biobanks, but data from epidemiology that has been uh, the Swedish Longitudinal Occupational Survey of Health, that's 20,000 people, and the prevalence of those severe cases is 1%. Uh, same with the Swedish Twin Registry, Stockholm Public Health Cohort. So, you know, when you have 70,000 people and down you, you scroll to those that you want to study, uh, the, the prevalence or the abundance of that material is low. Or, you know, if you work with populational data, you need very big amounts to finally identify the target population you want to study. And this is the limitation we have currently. We've designed our own project called STOP, the Swedish Tinnitus Outreach Project. Uh, this has been our first type of biobanking effort. Um, we try to work it a bit wisely because recruiting people from outside is quite difficult. So instead we paired, uh, we collaborated with uh, other biobanks that were in the uh, you know, neighboring side of Karolinska. I think that Sweden is known for, for uh, a lot of their um, biobanking efforts. So we collaborated with LifeGene and LifeGene said, no problem, we can invite the people, our participants to join STOP and to contribute in, in what way you can. So we invited 60,000 people, 6,000 um, were registered. Half of them had tinnitus, the other half did not. But this was populational scale. And then when you look at those that were of interest for us, then we had 100 from, for whom we had DNA collected. So out of 6,000 people, you know, even if we have a nice design because we also have controls, this is something that's difficult to, to get. The, um, the target population, what we figured out after all these years of analyzing the data is that that's a very small portion of what we gathered. Yeah, so this show demonstrates the struggle with getting the sample sizes you need. David, do you have anything to add in terms of studies that you've been involved in that you think are interesting to share? Sure. So the British Tinnitus Association supports um, research in two ways. One is that we fund uh, research and and we have funded um, research looking at um, biobanks. So one of the projects that Chris is working on, as I mentioned, they're looking at the UK Twins Registry with uh, Francis Williams at King's College London is a, is a project that the BTA is funding. And uh, Chris is writing up, I'm assured, at the moment for publication. But another way we do it is encouraging them working alongside researchers as well to try and find key questions and, and look at how to um, publicise and pu publish those. So we've been looking a lot at... UK biobank data in particular. And we found some longitudinal data in there as well, and some longitudinal data about tinnitus. So whilst a lot of the basic epidemiology studies have been done and published on tinnitus, one of the studies that hasn't been done is just looking at that longitudinal data 
and seeing if it tells us anything as well. So um, I looked at that along with uh, Piers Dawes, uh, Dave Bagley and John Newell um, and just tried to understand if, if that told us anything interesting. And it did. Um, looking at um, prevalence of tinnitus, we saw that actually tinnitus remained broadly static in those groups and broadly static in terms of how people um, perceive the troublesomeness of it as well um, right. sever and severity. So you mean if they were asked at point A in time, right. do you have tinnitus? How badly do you suffer from it? And you ask them in p at point B, uh, I guess a couple of years later, I don't know what time difference we're talking about, then it's mostly the same answers that you're getting yeah broadly static so i mean and this was one of the issues with the um paper was that you didn't know if or the research and the data you don't know if those people have sought help or treatment in that time you don't know if anything else has deteriorated um and on average well there wasn't an average the time gap between people going in at the first point and then going in at the second time was between two and seven years so huge variability in in the data um but yes what we saw was that there was a fairly large percentage of people who said they had tinnitus at time point one and then said at time point two later on that they'd never had tinnitus. So actually that leads to some fundamental questions to ask about um, how we're defining tinnitus and how we're asking those questions. Um, but also then we saw once you, you discounted that group, we saw 9% of people improving, 9% getting worse and the, and the rest staying broadly static. And so to Chris's point then, what was be really interesting was understanding more about what's happening to those with severe tinnitus. But actually, once you got down to this level of data and you tried to analyze it again, you're down to numbers which were fairly meaningless. So again, we wanted and were more ambitious with what we thought we may be able to get out of that paper than actually ended up being the case. But I still think there are stories left in the UK biobank and other data and other biobanks that can really help us. Um, as Chris was saying, if we can develop some sort of meaningful, severe type of tinnitus and actually then go back at the data at a, at a large level and, and interrogate it, we may well find something more interesting. And that was a study that um, I was working on that sadly uh, fell apart due to um, a few colleagues moving on in, in key positions. But again, you know, I think our research, if you like, is a little more superficial than, than some of the, the great work that, that Chris has been involved with, but we're coming up with the same issues. It's how do you define tinnitus in an adequate way that's going to be meaningful and allows you to, to potentially separate people with long-standing tinnitus, with permanent tinnitus, from those who may um, experience it in a more transitional way? And how do you get the number and quality of data that's really going to be able to take you forward with that characterization of tinnitus as well to give you truly meaningful results? And I'll just give you uh, one more example before before finishing. So we were looking at, you know, could we actually understand some of the, and use some of the imaging data within UK Biobank of the study with a with a team a while ago? And you're looking at it going, you know, this would be great, but actually, you know, we need to understand laterality if we're going to use the uh, the imaging data in this way. So we need to understand does someone hear tinnitus in the left ear, in the right ear, or in both ears? And even data at that basic level isn't there, which just hampers so many studies from moving forward that it becomes almost irrelevant to use that and you have to then start thinking about you know we need to go and do it from scratch another criticism might be well why don't you go back to the uk biobank and ask everyone in there much more detailed questions about tinnitus which you certainly could do but then you've got data about someone's tinnitus possibly a decade later from when an imaging study was done and, and how useful or how comparable is that so so yeah lots of challenges i think in terms of using existing data that you know is well published now and well understood that means that actually i believe yeah we have to look at um, our own community resource so you've both clearly run into 
the limitations here with the existing data. What is really needed now to take like a big leap forward? I'd say, you know, even the studies that um, David is describing here, they've, they've been very important. Uh, we've been recapitulating many of those findings, you know, about the dynamic and transition of people uh, with occasional tinnitus. Um, and um, uh, we went to the, we had a little chance because the data that we had included a better definition for constant tinnitus. And there we could show that with the, when you have occasional tinnitus, which is what is defined now with the questions in the UK biobank, people shift from one condition to another. And that's every two, every two years, we, we got samples collected over 10 years period every two years, so five follow-ups. And there the transition in the groups is, is really big. But once you get to constant tinnitus, the likelihood you have it constant afterwards increases dramatically. So there we were able to see something that was not possible with the UK Biobank, is that um, with increasing frequency of occasional tinnitus, the risk for getting tinnitus constant raises a lot. And if you already have constant tinnitus, the likelihood of it to persist in time uh, also increases there dramatically. So this guided us to ask the question, we had data collected over uh, these four years time, did those 6,000 people that I mentioned before, uh, we recruited a thousand of them to uh, measure uh, auditory brainstem responses. Uh, so that's a non-invasive measure for, for hearing. Usually hearing could be, you know, tested with pure tonal geometry where you ask people if they hear consciously a sound and they press on a button and acknowledge they have heard something. But uh, ABRs, so the uh, brainstem response is a bit more objective. And there you stimulate the auditory pathway from the ear to the auditory cortex and you can measure its activity, the amplitude of those ner nerve responses. And then we ask the question, can we see something different between non-tinnitus people, people with occasional tinnitus and those with constant. And uh, what we saw is that the, the, the waveforms are different than those that have constant tinnitus when compared to those that have it occasionally. Um, so th this, this hasn't been published yet, that's uh, pending um, an evaluation still, but um, we're comfortable in, in saying that we, we see that, you know, the epidemiology on one side shows the transition to constant tinnitus, and we see that the nervous system also is altered in this group of people, um, which is suggesting that already there we have a subtype that can be defined with some form of biomarker, so an electrophysiological change that's subjective, and, and that could be a first evidence that this group is at least the minimum required for being studied in, in tinnitus. Uh, we shouldn't be focusing on occasional tinnitus. Uh, to give you more arguments on this, um, um, we've been uh, seeing, you know, examples also for, for schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is very hard to diagnose, you agree? You know, people complain always that tinnitus cannot be objectively diagnosed, but people have been focusing on schizophrenia research for 40 years without being able to put a diagnostic marker on it. So <laughs> sometimes I feel frustrated there is so much rigor in tinnitus, but so it's the case. But in, in their genetic analysis, the best way to ensure a high-quality phenotype was to say we only consider patients that have been to the hospital as inpatients at least two times. That's very interesting because in the case of tinnitus, for instance, uh, people that come to the clinic because of a tinnitus complaint are directly labeled with the ICD code and get then stuck into the medical registry data with this 93.1 coding. But we don't know there also if it's something chronic, if it's something 
constant. And sometimes people are curious about it. Uh, they have experienced it maybe one night after a concert or a party. They go to the clinic and say, well, I had this beeping sound, what it is. And finally, they, they go back home because it, it's faded away. And, and then still they're in the registry system. So I think even the prevalence of those that have severe tinnitus that is chronic, constant, and severe is even lower than what we think uh, now it is. And that could be the target population. Um, and, and that's aspects of new definitions that we need to consider. The problem is that we use the same word for everything. Tinnitus is occasional. Tinnitus is constant. Tinnitus is severe. I'll give the example, for instance, of blood pressure. There has been guidelines now for hypertension, and they say you cannot diagnose someone with hypertension if it comes once to the clinic and has high blood pressure. You have to have at least four rounds of sequential visits spaced with three to four weeks before you say, all right, now you do have hypertension. And I think our limitation is that we have a word for a condition where it might be a meaning, meaningless condition, like someone that experiences just overnight. That can be a symptom over noise exposure of maybe a stress. But those that have it constant, severe, and chronic, there, there is something that's wrong and that's different from the other ones. And we cannot say they have a symptom. At the moment that the symptomatology came over and dominates everything, then that becomes a condition worth of, of digging more into the details. The other problem is that sometimes when you go to the clinic because of hearing loss, you mention you have a tinnitus, but it might be non-bothersome. Still, you're tagged with it. So you have a lot of noise even in medical registry data uh, and there is a great need for improving those definitions uh, such that first those that have something that's symptomatic you know are classified as such but those that have a disorder are recognized also as having a problem that deserves clinical uh, care uh, so i think that's where the, the future is uh, needed to to have optimized uh, you know definitions uh, for better classification there um I think, again, Chris is making some really valid points in terms of what's our definition of tinnitus. And I, I sometimes wonder when you see those big general epidemiology studies as well, if they're really helping or hindering us a little bit. Um, so there was one out recently, which again, put the number of people with tinnitus at an at a order of magnitude from where it was previously. Um, you know, paper from the um, ESIT cohort that uh, Chris referenced earlier. And actually, if you look at the question that was asked, it was, have you heard sounds such as ringing, hissing or buzzing in your ears lasting longer than five minutes in the last year? I mean, my surprise is that's not everyone. You know, it's, it almost it's feels true. like surely, you know, that's a, a greater, you know, population than even reports it um, within the within the paper. So I think there is a there is a question, like Chris says, about do we really need to think about how we're narrowing down and defining tinnitus, especially for some of these studies where we really want to fundamentally understand and help those who are really, really struggling. And actually, you know, does the recruitment profiles and everything else we're using at the moment, actually, is that, is that a barrier to, to really effective research and looking at how we do move forward with some of these studies? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I, I really like what you're both bringing forward here in terms of focusing specifically on that group of chronic severe sufferers. Uh, clearly, that's a different beast, you know, than someone who just intermittently hears uh, tinnitus. Uh, also, it's interesting to hear you explain, Chris, that uh, once you have chronic tinnitus, the, the likelihood that it persists is, is quite great. It's 
probably not what people with chronic tinnitus want to hear, but the data shows this, right? And so I think zooming in on, on that that group and particularly the severe sufferers that that uh, I would agree that's what's needed. So I think you've both clearly highlighted that in order to move forward, we need clearer definitions of tinnitus and which groups of people with tinnitus we're actually focusing on. Are there other things that are needed? Yeah, um, maybe I can bounce back on that. Um, you know, mentioning uh, first to answer back on on your comment about you know the the fact that chronic tinnitus might persist, we still see that people that have constant tinnitus might come back to an occasional stage. So it's not that it's completely resistant to any uh, remission. Uh, th there are events happening, so uh, we, we shouldn't, you know, emphasize on... on do, do you have a percentage on that? Not yet, but if it okay. gets published, <laughs> I'll keep you posted and then you can share this with um, the tinnitus hub observers. Um, but then, you know, when you say what's missing, I think that we're in, in two different scenarios. When we started working in Nottingham and wanted to think about biobanking, because that was one of the reasons why I got recruited there. Uh, the big question was, again, how uh, do we collect also the controls that come to the clinic? Uh, the majority of them have hearing loss. Uh, she would get also people with hearing loss without tinnitus. And uh, that becomes tricky because then you, you fall into a category which is also um, a, a pure clinical environment. That's another aspect. We People have shown that there is already a genetic difference from for those that go and seek help to the doctor and those that don't. So just by looking at a clinical population, you might get differences in the genome from what you would have gotten from the population. Now, we see also that not everybody with severe tinnitus goes and seeks help. And not everybody that has been seeking help has severe tinnitus. So there are things like that that one has to consider. And this is why not only we have to work with clinics and start to gather data there, but we also have to work within the population. And that, that has been aspects that maybe David wants to talk about is how to reach out to the population in an effective manner. Um, this is a, a quite tricky aspect, but I, I think his ideas are, are brilliant and he should share those here. Um, but I believe that um, it's the dual efforts that, that is needed. Uh, then biobanks shouldn't be you know, uh, restricted to a country. We need other countries to do the same. Uh, because you need validation. Uh, there's been outstanding work performed, for instance, already within Sweden for diabetes. They've managed to identify subtypes, five subtypes of diabetes, uh, when, you know, we thought there were only two, type 1, type 2, and that's it. And then thanks to, you know, additional blood collection, biomarkers, and genetic data, they were really comfortable in saying, well, now we identified a group of patients that is responsive to metformin treatment, and we can help them getting a, a cure for diabetes. But they had sample sizes about 7,000 replicated in other cohorts in Sweden that were three to 4,000. Well, all that information available, that's really outstanding. And I think that because of the rare condition we have, we're not at the scale of diabetes. Um, we need a lot of material, but we need other countries to join that effort. And here, I would say that the work that the BTA is doing in England is outstanding. Uh, the fact that there are many of the institutions working on hearing is fantastic. That's not the case everywhere in Europe. I've always wondered why there was such a difference between, you know, the UK and the rest of Europe. And I would say even USA and UK are, are both of them quite investing financial resources towards hearing and uh, tinnitus. And uh, I think I understood that they have a better definition for what are auditory problems considered like a disability. 
So in the US, uh, hearing problems are within the Disability Act. So the government has the responsibility, the liability to favor research, to give them proper care, to train audiologists to measure their hearing, to give them cure, to give them the ability to attend courses at the university, uh, to be able to find a job and attend this. And uh, the same is in the UK, there is also such big definitions. But in Europe, uh, Europe has delegated that definition to each country. And each country has its proper thought about what hearing loss, you know, should be considered a, a disability or not. There are also a lot of, act, um, I would say, lobbying of the uh, deaf community that doesn't want to be considered uh, a uh, um, disability group because they can communicate, they can work on their own. But there is not enough emphasis on that difference between someone that has acquired hearing in its life and loses it uh, suddenly and then cannot communicate uh, anymore. And, and within that group comes also those with tinnitus. Um, so I'd say that at a political level, we need something. And that's where maybe the uh, involvement of patients, uh, and that's, that's an important also point, is that patients in other countries already in the UK and elsewhere should raise their voices about the importance of tinnitus. Now COVID is a fantastic opportunity for them to be heard and emphasize, you know, on the need for research in that area. Also, long COVID now is becoming more and more, um, you know, a, a, a focus and, and research as well. Tinnitus is part of that too. So I think that, um, that that's part of, of some of the needs we, we have there. And the biobanking efforts, um, you know, we, we should learn from all of these great cores, like the Psychiatric Genomic Consortium has now published GWASs on a thousand, more, more than a million people. Uh, it's outstanding. And that's not the result of one UK biobank thing. It's individual clinicians that were sending samples directly to Chapel Hill where things got sequenced. And what we need is something centralized where individual uh, doctors, wherever in the world, would agree to have you know, their ethics approved in their own country and ship the samples to the same area, have it centralized by an organism. And there you sequence it, everybody in the same way, with the same tools, same technology, same batches. This is very important for the homogeneity of the analysis as well. And there you can get information that's outstandingly valuable. But if everybody is working on their side, that will not work. So here we need a change also in the attitude from the ENT clinics and the theater researchers. We need to join forces. We need to join hands. Um, and this is a spirit that is not, I would say, I've been working in metabolism and reproduction before, and I've seen different attitudes in, in that area of research. Um, um, this, this has been a bit lagging in, in the ENT field. And hopefully when that happens, then we can really raise the things all together and, and give give a, a solution because that that's uh, the ultimate aim. So, David, I'm sure you have some things to add, to add to this, and and we'd like to hear also about you know any specific plans that you have in this area, and also maybe you could respond to some of the comments Chris made about like political environment and you know sp specifically in the UK. I assume you know. This is something you're working on as well. Sure. Yeah, there's there's a lot to, to go out there, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> um so yeah, starting from, you know, what's missing or what else would we need? Um, you know, Chris covered it really well, I think, in terms of, you know, that that patient data and everything else. Um, you know, a big challenge will be funding. Um, if we do manage to produce a tinnitus biobank, it will probably be the 
largest, most expensive study of tinnitus that's happened outside of um, pharma, that's for sure. So again, we'd need funding of a magnitude beyond what's ever been invested in tinnitus research in the past. So that's a certain challenge, I think, that we'd face in, in terms Can of developing it. Can you give us it. an idea of what we're talking about here? I think people would find it hard to imagine, like, you know, I mean, 100,000 sounds like a lot to some people, but <laughs> I assume it's more than that. Yeah, yeah um, we've priced it within the BTA at the moment, it's about 4 million. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, the only project that's come close to that would be Unity, which is a 6 million euro EU funded project, but one that's quite diverse and a number of different partners and, and a number of different research projects within it as well. So I think it would be of a, of a magnitude bigger than anything else we've seen for a single uh, project. So, so funding's certainly an issue. And then, you know, we've talked a lot about um, the data as well, and that really deep characterization of tinnitus is what's, of course, missing in a lot of um, biobanks at the moment. But also the other thing that's missing is, is high quality audiometry, and actually the data that would once and for all allow us to answer that question of what comes first, tinnitus or hearing loss, or what is the true interaction between the two, um, which will really, again, help us push forward in our understanding of tinnitus so in terms of the data that's going to be a key issue for us to to resolve and another which you know is always surprising but but is sadly a, a bit of a fact is that tinnitus research trials are tricky to recruit to so actually can we get enough people who would turn up and be part of a, a tinnitus biobank and not only people with tinnitus but as Chris and I have said, people with chronic tinnitus, ideally young people with chronic tinnitus, to try and get as, as few comorbidities as possible. So, you know, can we get the right people to turn up and be part of this, as well as obviously wanting to then recruit um, control studies, so people who don't have tinnitus to be part of it, so we can compare, and, and really importantly, can we get controls that have similar levels of hearing loss to those with tinnitus as well, so we can really start to unpick things. So lots and lots of challenges. You know, my big hope is that people with tinnitus would form an orderly queue and, and be part of a, a study this big that has this much um, potential to be a game changer. But, you know, it's not being tried. So until someone does go out there and put the sign above the door, we don't know. Yeah, we'd love to help with that where we can, you know, if we hopefully do get to that point where you're actually ready to sort of recruit patients, uh, then we will certainly do what we can to help out. Absolutely. And we'll be relying on any and every uh, mechanism we have really to, to really try and, and push up those numbers. And the way we're thinking of collecting the data at the moment is through having a mobile data collection unit. So it's something that other biobanks have done in the past, but we'd want one that was um, sort of custom built for a tinnitus biobank. So one with a sound uh, booth built into it so that we could do all the audiometry and basically we'd tour the UK and go around different towns and cities and you know do a huge um, PR campaign as we went to each town and just recruit locally and, and try and target populations whilst we're in each of those settings as well and, and really try and activate people with tinnitus to come along and ideally bring a control with them, um, someone who doesn't have tinnitus to be part of it and you know, we feel that that's probably got the best shot of, of doing what we want to do and collecting the type of data that would be needed. And, you know, at the same time, hopefully, you know, we'd publish all our protocol and everything else and how we designed the van and encourage other organizations around the world to do the same and, and hopefully collect the same level of quality of data as well, which, you know, would respond to many of the points we've seen, but also hopefully 
respond to the point that Chris was making that actually you're after quite a small population in reality. You know, whilst you want to cover the, the spectrum of tinnitus, you want everyone in there, actually the people you really want, you want to overweight it in terms of who you're recruiting to the to those who have um, severe tinnitus and ideally are, are a little bit younger as well. Hmm. I assume with the mobile data collections, there's limitations to that. I mean, would you be able to collect samples? Yes. Um, so we are designing it with the hope of, well, with the expectation of collecting blood as well. That is doable. We've we've spoke about that and got um, a good idea of how we could do that and administer it in the same place. You know, there are challenges with everything else. You know, you've got to be careful where you park it. You can't park it next to a railway line or anything else because the sound would be too great in the in the soundproof room. But yeah, we've looked at it and there is a, a pioneer in this area as well. So the University of Manchester does conduct studies in hearing loss this way at the moment. So they do have this uh, sort of specification out there on the road. So we've got something that we can learn from as well in terms of something else that's that's been successful in terms of recruiting and and being used in studies like this um our big challenge will be trying to do as many tests as possible within a short amount of time because the other thing we've got is you know how much will people put up with if you like how many tests can you run and how much time will people be willing to give to something like this so we're trying to limit it to two hours at the moment and there's quite a discussion between myself chris and other colleagues about if that's the case then what tests do you do and what tests don't you do? But the reality is, yeah, you, you, the time limit is going to be another factor, I think, in terms of how much you can collect. Um, because, of course, the other thing is the longer time it takes, then the less numbers you get or the, the longer the time period is to collect the data as well. Yeah. And in the end, you you are kind of stuck with the fact that you, you have to meet the patients face to face for a few hours one way or the other. And I mean, unless you've thought about collecting data somehow remotely, I, I don't know if that would be possible, like in a way where people all over, all over the world could take part. Uh, is that possible? Yeah. And that's, um, again, something that already exists. So there are some of those um, sort of projects already out there. Um, but yeah, we will be looking at how to collect some of the data ahead of people coming to the centre as well. Um, what we haven't figured out yet and is still an active discussion is if you ask someone to do the TFI, for instance, so want a tinnitus functional index or other tinnitus questionnaire and they do it a couple of days before they then turn up and you do the rest of it, is the other numbers from that test still valid two days later? Don't know. No one's um, done that study to, to really find out. So, you know, there are challenges with that with how far in advance you collect some of the data. But yeah, we'd certainly hope to, you know, look at doing a lot of it before people turn up. Um, in terms of collecting, like you say, much, the, the greater volume of data, um, it's certainly something we'll um, consider. We haven't quite got to a stage where we, we know what to do with that yet, because again, you know, and it's my view rather than necessarily the community's view is that, you know, that's available. I think it is that quality of audiom audiometry and that quality of, you know, the, the biosamples that's missing at the moment. So that certainly would be our focus within this. Don't know. I mean, Chris might have more to add on that. Yeah, we've been reflecting on that aspect also in Unity because um, one of the uh, complications uh, at some stage was, you know, should we collect saliva, which is easier for a non-experienced ENT staff to collect versus blood, which requires a nurse to come and do that. And then came up some publications that revealed that if you do saliva and perform genome sequencing on it, you get a lot of contamination from the bacteria you have in your mouth. This does not happen if you perform exome sequencing because then you only focus in the proteins that will be produced in the human body. So you can distinguish what comes from a bacteria and what comes from 
the human body, but not if you have a whole genome. So saliva is not appropriate if you want to have that deep level of sequencing that you can achieve when you collect blood samples instead. So that that's one detail that one has to know. You can can reach out for broader than than the mobile unit, but then you might be restricted in not being able to collect the blood, but instead collect some some saliva, but then have a limited amount of information, and and that can be critical too. Um, then we we've been also performing this this analysis that uh, David has been talking about about um, checking biomarkers in the blood, and um, this is also not published now, but we've screened for. Um, 190 different inflammatory molecules. Uh, we made the hypothesis that uh, tinnitus was related to that because there is emerging data from animal work suggesting there is inflammation in the cortex. And uh, if it, those markers are detectable in the blood, that can be a, a nice biomarker to use in the future as well. But we did that analysis on 1,000 people, so uh, 500 cases, 500 controls with constant tinnitus. That's for which we have evidence that they have electrophysiological changes, but we don't see anything in in, in the blood. So, um, some aspects there, you know, we haven't searched for everything, but uh, maybe the plasma or the blood for those molecules might not be the most needed. Uh, in fact, collecting the information for DNA and genetic. Uh, so that that that's one aspect there that. Um, Having, having the DNA can help in doing that subtyping that is really key for identifying groups that can be better responders to a specific treatment. So get, getting DNA is not only for subtyping, you know, you can have greater knowledge in the fundamental mechanisms of tinnitus, and that's also what's lacking now. Um, people have worked on animal models, but there is a lot of skepticism and, you know, oh, how can you measure tinnitus in a mouse? We don't believe that. And there again, you know, people have been working on schizophrenia for 40 years and not asking those questions. They just went ahead and acquired a lot of information and now they have a great understanding just of it. Just get the data first. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, having, having the genes in human can help in designing better animal models that can then make the bridge between preclinical work and clinical work too. And this will increase the confidence into what has been generated in the past and what will be generated in the future. At some stage, one will have to test a drug on an animal before um, uh, testing it in humans. So we need that. Uh, I call that back translation. So from human to animals to validate what is found in humans. That's important. Um, and in fact, what I'm talking about is uh, part of the key things that AstraZeneca has been evaluating seven years ago. Um, they were asking themselves the question, why are so many of our phase three clinical trials failing? And they went back to their data and started digging into it, and they made their five R's. So we need the right commercial potential. Uh, we agree that for tinnitus, we have that. That's not an issue. We need the right patient, and that means the subtype, which we don't have yet. We need the right tissue, so delivery in the brain or in the ear. Maybe that's also a type of information that now we don't really know. Um, there is evidence that things happen in, in the brain, but what if you cure the ear? Would you also get rid of tinnitus right away? Um, the right uh, safety, so that's, you know, no side effects and so on. You don't want to target something else in the body. And then uh, the right target, that means the good protein that you want to uh, aim. And this is important because um, gene genome studies or genetic studies 
they can help validating in humans what your drug is. Um, is it a good target or not? So they figured out that when they have a protein target, if there is no GWAS data that shows that there is a link between that protein and the disease, then there is a greater likelihood of failure in the phase uh, three trials. But if you have a genetic validation of your target, then the success is really increased. And based on that, they started getting rid of all the projects that had bad animal models, bad genetic connection with human diseases. And included in that was also a tinnitus project that was run in Stockholm, uh, where they were trying to redefine lidocaine. So lidocaine has been for long also known to transiently suppress tinnitus, uh, but you cannot give it chronic because it has a lot of side effects. So lidocaine is really the first proof that tinnitus can fade away uh, with a drug. Uh, that happened because, you know, people went to the dentist and got the injection in the jaw and suddenly they figured out, oh, my tinnitus is, is gone. Uh, so something can be done there. And AstraZeneca made a lot of efforts to try to make it less, um, uh, with less side effects. Uh, they had a team working with animal models to try to develop that too, but they never achieved that. So that that is part of the things that went into trash because they were not reliable animal models. They were not uh, reliable genetic data to um, suggest it would be really a good um, uh, disease to start focusing on. And, and biobanks will help bring that confidence there. Yeah, oh, th those are all very interesting points, especially those five criteria that you mentioned. Can we zoom in on one of them, which is subtyping? Because you've both mentioned it sort of in passing several times. I do think it's worth spending a few more minutes talking about subtypes because it's one of those things where most people sort of intuit there must be subtypes because people have different causes for their tinnitus. They hear different things. But I don't think we have the real evidence or know exactly what the subtypes are. But then again, you know, like you said, a lot of trials are failing and possibly one of the reasons is that, you know, if you test a new treatment on 500 people with tinnitus, but they're just 500 people with tinnitus and they could have all kinds of different tinnitus, then maybe you're just focusing on the wrong group there. Your group is too broad uh, and uh, you can't figure out why it works for some people, doesn't work for others. Are you sort of strong believers in that there must be subtypes and uh, how, can, how can we identify them? I think there are. Um, again, as you say um, there, Hazel, when you, when you look at some of the data um, and you look at some of those data within papers and, and they publish individual patients, you know, sometimes you see individual patients absolutely fly and, and get miraculously better almost, you know, to a level where they're, you know, you could say they're cured. Um, you see others who flatline and others who get worse. So you do start to think there's, there's got to be something in that that is beyond um, placebo or other reasons as to why these, some of these interventions are having such profound effect on some and, and no effect on others or, or, or a worsening as well. So I do think there's something in subtyping. As you presented in your question, how you go about subtyping is, is still very much an open debate. Do you go by cause? Do you go by the sound someone hears? Do you go by the, the frequency that sound is, is heard at or, or something else that we haven't yet discovered or, or looked at? And I think it is an emerging field. And I think we're seeing papers start to think about this and start to look at um, subtyping in a, in a way that's, you know, developing and opening the, the area around. 
I know Eleni Genetsaridi did a published a paper last year looking at a potential way to subtype tinnitus, which was interesting, and and looking at using big data to try and do that. Um, I've seen other data presented um, which looks at using hearing loss and looking at where different types of hearing loss and maybe hypothesizing that, that the different types of hearing loss that exist could be a way to subtype. Um, and we see it within the research um, produced by Neuromod, which actually looked at linking tinnitus to hyperacusis or not as well, and seeing if there were different results in, in populations of people who had tinnitus and hyperacusis, or just tinnitus or just hyperacusis. So again, I think we're, we're seeing the emergence of the debate, um, but again, I don't think there's a clear direction of travel or a clear um, sort of view from the research community as to what the right way to subtype is. Chris? Yeah, I, I think what David has explained is really, really good and clear. Um, in fact, yeah, the, the study you're mentioning about hyperacusis was a work published by Hofmeier and uh, collaborators Knipper and Lukas Rüttiger in Germany, and, and they could see that, you know, the auditory brainstem response would differ depending on whether you had hyperacusis or not. But if you didn't make that distinction, you wouldn't have seen any effect. And suddenly when you exclude those from that have hyperacusis, you start to see effects. And, and uh, in fact, we recapitulated part of these findings, but with other approaches. So already here, we can say, you know, tinnitus with or without hyperacusis, these two groups are different. Um, and we see with our data that people that have constant tinnitus are different from those that are occasional. Maybe here we're, we're not talking about subtyping yet. We're talking about how to optimize the target group we want to study. Uh, you know, those with severe chronic constant tinnitus could be. And within there, that's where we don't know what will define them as a subtype. And this is what is going to be the challenge of recruiting sufficient amount of people. Because if even if you get 7,000 cases like that, the prevalence of those that have pulsatile tinnitus is so little that to still make that little subgroup critical, you need big, big, big samples. People have been trying to focus on gender aspects. In our group, we're looking into males and females. They behave different. We see, for instance, and this has been uh, published in uh, the research topic on sex and gender differences in tinnitus, um, people have shown that women are more respondent to some of the treatments that happen nowadays than are men. Um, so, um, you know, th there are things to consider there and, and sex, when, you know, people have already been including this as a variable in their data, not so many people have segregated that data to look at men and women separately and understand how they respond to the biology, but that already cuts your data by two. And, uh, so, you know, subtyping is like a, a very big funnel and suddenly you end up with very little numbers, um, that, that might have an impact on on what you're going to study. So because of, of that, and because that particular group of tinnitus people, constant, chronic, severe, are fairly studied, um, we need as much as possible. And then we can ask the questions. We're, so we're going a bit blindly in that data collection, but hopefully this will be big enough. So then answers can be, uh, can be gathered in a very secured manner. Yeah, makes sense. So again, just get the data first, and then you'll get the answers. It's it's funny that you say that, because when we started building up our stop cohort, and um, this is from an ethical aspect, it's quite difficult just to tell the ethics committee, you just gather data for the sake of data gathering. They don't want that. You need a, a specific question. At that time, we had another one, but while we gathered data, we figured out what we initially asked ourselves was wrong. 
and then we could use the, the data for other purposes. But when we mentioned that to some of the patient organizations in Sweden, they were laughing and say, but what are you financed with? So I have no financing. How many are you? We're two, me and an audiologist. Um, and you're going to become the biggest you know, cohort ever? <laughs> well, that's what we hoped and ambition to. And, um, and we never, never got support for that because you don't get money support for the data acquisition. Uh, we got the money then once acquired to do genetic studies with Unity and Asset and Tiger. But the whole data collection was something we had to do on our own. And it was extremely challenging to convince people to do it. And that's why we relied on collaborations with people that already had gathered participants and motivate them to, you know, illustrate the relevance for our disease topic. And um, some, this is something I've tried to do in Nottingham, but I noticed that there are very few large courts of the kind where people could be uh, sent out to, to a sub-study, if one may call it like that, and to try to, to do a, a deeper research. So um, these aspects, you know, one, one will have to consider that too. I think this is a good bridge to sort of our, our, our last topic and we can start wrapping up. So we, we've talked a lot about what's needed from a scientific perspective, um, but you've both also mentioned some of the challenges with funding, etc. So can we talk about what's needed sort of, I don't know, socially, politically, economically <laughs> um, to get these tinnitus biobank initiatives off the ground? And if there's anything that let's say the tinnitus community can do to help? I think from, from my perspective, um, I mean, th this is tricky because for instance, where I came from in Sweden, uh, tinnitus has not been a priority uh, disorder um, and the evaluation system and the funding schemes were not uh, in favor of that stuff. They were focusing on Parkinson's disease, uh, Alzheimer and so on. And within the neurological field, that was not uh, a top priority. But uh, one thing that worked good in, in Sweden is uh, philanthropism. And there uh, one had to you know, ask for, for larger um, private foundations that would sponsor uh, big and ambitious projects. I never got that type of funding, but I think that um, if I'd have stayed in Sweden uh, longer, that would have been probably a strategy to, to have. Now, England um, was different because uh, they have institutions that fund for uh, auditory research um, there is a very active BTA going on there. Uh, patients are, are raising their voices. So there could be other means. Now, one thing that I'm not aware of is whether philanthropism exists to a level that uh, we can really make uh, a change there too. Maybe David can talk about it. Sure. So again, speaking from a sort of UK perspective and, and even more sort of focused in England perspective, um, so the BTA initiated a roundtable discussion um, at the House of Commons um, three years ago now. And from that, we had a question asked on the floor of the Commons of the Health Secretary, who then promised to investigate funding into tinnitus research. Um, that led to the Department of Health and Social Care um, in the UK looking at tinnitus research. They did their own roundtable event a year later, and there is now a group that's looking at how to invest greater funds in both tinnitus and uh, hearing loss research and, and what the priorities are. Biobank is one of those that, of course, is being pushed within that group. Um, so, you know, that type of work and activity did work and did get us somewhere, but it's slow. Um, to be honest, you know, it's it's having those impacts and those effects on government does take time. 
Um, but certainly what people with lived experience of tinnitus can do is is write their MP in the UK, um, get their M MPs um, mailbags and inboxes full of information and, and, you know, experience of what it's like to live with tinnitus. That makes a huge difference. Um, we've done that with a couple of support groups here in, in England as well, where we've invited the local MP to come along and speak to the the tinnitus support group and just learn what it's like to live with tinnitus and and hearing that firsthand from their constituents does make a huge difference and does have an impact on on mps and politicians in the uk and i'm sure elsewhere as well and and it is that real life um story that that does have an have an impact and does make a difference um you know we do get letters fairly regularly from mps offices saying we've had this letter can you help us answer it and you know, things like that. So it does make a difference and people having that type of activism and knocking on the door and saying, this is my experience, having tinnitus, you know, is awful. What are you doing about it as a government? Does really have impact and, and you know, MPs do respond to that. Yeah, I do think the UK is probably a bit ahead of the curve compared to many other countries when it comes to patient activism, involvement, etc. But it's a good example, I would say, um, that hopefully other countries can follow. Yeah, I think so. And, and just more broadly, of course, um, you know, we'll be asking for people to sign up during Tinnitus Week and say that they're interested in a biobank and would participate. Again, that's going to be important intelligence gathering for for us to look at, you know, could we really recruit at the level we'd need to to be effective? So if people do believe that um, they would participate and would be part, then please um, sign up um, with us to, to demonstrate that there is that interest. And as well, at some point, you know, we are going to need fundraising. We are going to need advocacy for this to really make it work. It is going to be a community project that sees this to, to be a success and to really take us forward. I think that's a great call to action that we can end on. But I will ask both of you if you have any sort of concluding remarks or anything that you uh, still want to mention, uh, Chris. Yeah, uh, I'd like to compliment on what David just said here. Uh, yesterday, I had a very interesting session with the WHO uh, because they are planning on a World Hearing Day uh, the 3rd uh, of March. And I was really surprised about the global uh, investment in people, the activity that they have there, all concerted into a single day where they just raise you know, the voice about hearing problems, the importance of it. And the activities are impressively large, and depending on every country's resources, these go, you know, to screening hearing in schools. Italy is doing uh, large conferences where they invite the Ministry of Health and all the other people to join, and they have uh, big doctors presenting. They have, you know, several groups talking about the different priorities that are needed in the country for a change. Um, and for tinnitus, maybe this is kind of missing. So. When we had the tinnitus week, I was, you know, telling the patient organizations in Sweden, maybe we should centralize all the uh, activities within the same period of time. Oh, we have our own there, and uh, you know that that doesn't make the system work a lot. Um, so, you know, maybe if one day we get the WHO to acknowledge that tinnitus can be uh, within their systems and of definition of disorders that need to be assessed on a global scale, that can be fantastic, I guess. We might reach a step like that once we have the proper definition of tinnitus and that we're able to gather the optimal data as well. Um, I worked with uh, the global burden of uh, study uh, of health, the global burden of health study, which is financed by Bill Gates. Um, uh, so I'm not a primary researcher in this, but I've been helping in uh, checking the data that's been collected on hearing um, in different countries. 
And I'm surprised to see or how much information is even lacking for hearing at the population level. Um, there are, you know, isolated studies here and there like that, but um, the, the summary of this is that we need really large-scale population data to, to check on those prevalences, and, and for that we need the, the proper definitions of tinnitus as well. When we started with nothing M, we were limited in space and how much information we could ask the people. We were not solely focusing on tinnitus as a biobanking effort, but also different types of auditory disorder, vestibular disorders. And we were only able to put one question on tinnitus. Uh, and how do you do that? Do you ask for severity or do you ask for constant versus occasional? So I think that we cannot answer tinnitus with one single question. It's multidimensional. We need aspects of chronicity, aspects of you know, um, uh, the temporal aspects, whether it's intermittent or constant. And then the third dimension is severity. So all of this needs to be taken into account for a proper definition. And uh, it, it, it makes the condition, you know, harder to pick up in, in, in large studies like that. But I think it's doable. I think it's doable. So I, I have good hopes that uh, in the near future, we can have those efforts uh, synchronized with everybody. Um, ourselves now with this large GWAS consortium, it's called EarGen. Um, we hopefully, you know, we can get a bit of funding as well just to start financing some infrastructure. Maybe, maybe in the future we can centralize all biobanking efforts to the Karolinska, uh, where, you know, samples can be stored there for a long time and, uh, everybody will ship them there. If someone else has the power to do it now elsewhere, please stand up and, uh, and do so because, uh, at some point one will have to do it. Um, and, uh. And hopefully then, you know, people can gather efforts and, and uh, working together, uh, have shared productivity and, and large papers. And, and this is the way to go for the future. Great. It's good to end on a optimistic note. Uh, David, do you have any concluding remarks? Yeah, I'd say I'm excited. I think there is some real consensus coming together about how we do move forward from where we are. And that's been lacking for a while. And I think that you know, consensus that move towards doing something on a scale of a, of a tinnitus biobank with that ambition would truly transform our, our area and our knowledge on tinnitus and really push us forward. And so whilst, you know, the road ahead is incredibly challenging and we've spoke about a lot of the, the challenges we will face in, in trying to get there, I, I think it's a, it's a goal that the community will hopefully get behind and understand, you know, the, the potential, if you like, of where this could take us. And, you know, I genuinely do think it's, it's exciting to see so many people come together with the aligned aims of doing something on this scale that will really hopefully push forward our knowledge and get to a stage where we can open those floodgates for pharma and industry and others to really invest in tinnitus research and take it seriously and hopefully get Chris's paper in nature or something as well. I wish <laughs> All right. I, I would like to thank you both very much for your time and sharing your insights and for this informative discussion. Thank you, Chris and David. Thanks, Azel, to you. I think it's a fantastic event and opportunity for everybody to disseminate this. It's important for the community and it's important for researchers also to get that connection. So thanks to you for giving us that chance. Yep, absolutely. Thank you, Hazel and uh, Tinnitus Hub, for inviting me back. And yeah, good luck with, with all your other work. And yeah, thank you for everything you do to, to support the Tinnitus community.